what's really exciting is when students come to the classroom and they get to offer something new that I have not experienced. You know, they get to teach me about new music or new cool creative projects that they're doing. And they get to teach me about what's going on in the world that I may not know about because I'm in my little like, bubble of work and my own, my own life. That's Lauren Bond, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm your host, Kara Duffy, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast, where I invite my favorite humans, the awesome, the up to something, and the extraordinary to come and share their story. I hope that you'll be left entertained, inspired, and moved to take action towards living your most powerful life. Lauren Bond is a good friend of mine, a new mom, and an English professor teaching at the community college and university levels. She's married to Matt, who's also an English professor, And when they got engaged, they made a commitment not just to each other, but also to health and fitness. On this episode, we discuss the realities of being a teacher today, if it's true that universities are pushing a liberal agenda, why teaching is one of the best career paths available, and what it looks like to take on fitness as a couple. All that and so much more coming up, but first. Hey guys, I'm so excited that you are here today to listen to another episode of the Powerful Ladies podcast. It's because of you guys that we are able to exist and survive and make this great content and have these great conversations. One way that you can really help us out is to go to thepowerfulladies.com and sign up for our newsletter. You will get great information and tips about once a month to know when we're having an awesome sale, when there's a great new course coming out, and just to hear all the cool stuff we're doing. It's the first place to learn about all the events and the things that we're up to. So please subscribe today. Welcome to the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here, um, even remotely. <laughs> I, um, I'm excited to be talking to you about this um, and just participating in your podcast, which is, I don't know, one of the coolest things that I have heard any of my friends doing. So um, yeah, thanks for having me. It's, I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> Well, let's start by telling the audience um, your name and what you're up to. Yeah, so my name is Lauren Bond, and um, I am a college professor. I teach English at several different colleges. Um, I teach at San Bernardino Valley College, Moreno Valley College. Um, Both of those are JCs um, in the Inland Empire. And I also teach as an adjunct at the University of Redlands, which is a four-year college, private college. Um, so what am I up to today? Uh, aside from preparing for the podcast, uh, I've just been grading like mad. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, it's been really, it's been really nice actually to use this weekend where I had a lot of free time to kind of catch up on grading and spend time prepping and all of that. We are pretty much in the middle of the semester now and kind of hitting our busiest point. So, um, that's what I've been doing today. Um, so yeah. And in addition, you're uh, a wife and a mom to be. Yes. Yeah. Um, my, my husband, Matthew, um, he's actually, um, out away right now, um, at a bachelor party out in Bishop and Mammoth. And, um, he's also a, a writing teacher and, um, I am pregnant. So I'm almost seven months pregnant and this is 
going to be our first child. So pretty excited about that whole new adventure. I'm excited that you are due at the same time as our other friend, Danae and Travis are due. Um, <laughs> just because like, it seems like it was a one, two, three, everyone got pregnant at once. And I was like, no way. Like they say this happens and it happened without anyone trying. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, in addition to Danae, um, I have maybe five or six other friends who are currently pregnant and then one who just gave birth. So uh, something's in the water. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, Danae and I are due almost exactly the same day. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard, to, you know, for us and for doctors to know exactly what day. But we're, we're essentially due the same exact time, so that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, so let's start at the beginning of your journey. Where are you from, yeah. and where did you grow up? So um, I've always been a Southern California girl. Um, I was. Born in Long Beach, but my parents moved to Moreno Valley when I was about two. Um, they, too, had kind of been moving around their whole lives um, for various reasons um, across the U.S. So when um, they got together and decided to have kids, they, they didn't want that for me and then eventually for my brother. So um, it, it's funny because... I'm someone who loves traveling and I say that now, so I probably, probably would have been okay with always moving, but I, I can't really say that because, mm-hmm. um, I had the, the luxury of, or the privilege to sort of grow up in one town most of my life and have that stability. So, um, they decided to buy a home in Moreno Valley when I was very young. Um, and my mom is, has been a teacher, um, since she was 22 and my dad, uh, he's actually, he's had a couple of careers and they kind of overlap. So he, at a young age, or I should say as a young man, he um, became very interested in golf and tried out for the PGA, um, like the actual association. Um, mm-hmm. He was never a touring pro, but he has been a teaching pro um, since his late 20s, I believe. And then when I was pretty young. He actually started teaching elementary school as well. So I'm the, I'm the child of two teachers. Uh, so I think it kind of makes sense that I became a teacher as well. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to think of some other like things about myself when I was young. Um, I didn't, I was, I was really energetic and I guess that probably is how you could still describe me. Um, I always, <laughs> yeah, I've always had a lot of interest and, um, I played sports when I was young. Um, I played softball for many, many years and dabbled in some other sports like soccer, even though I don't feel like I was very good at it. Um, I, I, I played all throughout middle school, just, you know, like on AYSO, um, it was just a fun thing to do in, in the fall, but I definitely had no um, no hopes of becoming a professional soccer player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, even though, I mean, softball, I felt like I was really good at, and I, I pr- pursued it for a long time. The only reason I stopped playing in high school was because um, I was also interested in music and was in band. Mm-hmm. And I felt that out of trying to divide my time with being a good student, and playing um, sports and playing music that I kind of had to choose two out of the three. I just didn't feel like I had the time. Mm-hmm. So I ended up stop, stop playing softball. Um, 
And that was a hard decision to make um, because I ultimately didn't pursue music beyond my sophomore year of high school either. And I ended up just focusing on, on school, which is maybe not a bad thing in and of itself, but um, I do, I think I always ended up missing playing softball for um, the rest of my high school career. And, and maybe even in college, I think I missed that athletic aspect quite mm-hmm. a bit. Well, one of the so. things that I love about you and Matt is the commitment that you guys made when you got engaged about not just getting fit for your wedding, but being committed right. to a fit lifestyle. How did you guys have that conversation and what does that look like in reality? It, it such a good memory. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we called it the marriage diet instead of the wedding diet. Um, we were, so Matt and I both met when we were pretty young. I was 20 and he was 22, I think, um, or I just turned 23. And um, yeah, I think we were just at that turning point in our lives where we both um, had stopped being kind of fit and active. Um, he was in, he was just starting graduate school and um, I was just figuring out or learning uh, that there's more to life than just going to school. I started, you know, going to p- parties and kickbacks and um, we became very social, but we kind of felt our health was not a priority. So mm-hmm. um, when we got together, we, since we both had interest in being healthy and working out, um, we decided, hey, let's, like, we have our whole lives together. Like, let's do something about that. So he was, he had always been a runner. And um, I never, <laughs> never saw myself as much of a runner, as I said. And, uh, I have, I do have asthma, which is kind of the excuse I used for a long time. Um, it's exercise induced for sure. So it is, it is harder for me at first when I start running specifically to kind of breathe, but he, he and I would go on these late night runs. I mean, I, when I say late night, I mean like one in the morning kind of run, (laughs) uh, we were very much night elves at the time. And so we would at the end of the day, go for uh, maybe a midnight or a 1am run together. And he kind of trained me for that. Uh, he would hang back and, and run with me and kind of push me and encourage me. And um, I started to really value what running could do. Um, and I think the one thing that I maybe brought to the relationship in terms of health at that point was cooking, because I've always had an interest in, in, cooking and kind of just trying new things in the kitchen. And, um, I, I don't think I, I never, I didn't really have a great diet growing up. I had a lot of fast food and, um, was always on the run, mm-hmm. but I, I, I knew that it was important to sort of get my nutrition in order. And I, I think that's where a lot of my creativity sort of occurs in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that was just a point of us living living together on our own, um, kind of recognizing that we needed to take care of ourselves for the long haul. And, um, that's kind of where it started. Um, yeah. And you've kept up with it. Yeah, we have, um, see, that was 11 years ago now. And since then we have run a handful of half marathons. I never thought I would be running a half marathon. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Um, I don't know if I ever will have it in me to do a full marathon, um, but I, I do like 
training and pushing myself to get to that 13, you know, that 13 mile mark. Um, we've done a handful, we've done three tough mutter, mm-hmm. um, two or three of those, I think. And then, uh, a Spartan, a Spartan beast. And we've done a handful of smaller mud runs. I really like the mud runs because it's not always, you're not always running just for 13 miles straight or whatever that is. You're, you are doing a bunch of obstacles and crawling in mud and under barbed wire and jumping into giant bins of ice water. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I kind of like that challenge. And, um, and we have a handful of other activities we like to do. We rock climb and we do yoga and weightlift. So um, I think that, I think, yeah, I think I could talk about that forever, but <laughs> uh, even though that's not my career, fitness is definitely just something that we really try to do and we try to exercise and get into that pattern, you know, at least three days a week, if not more. Do you guys do a lot of your training and working out together or are you just more holding each other accountable to make sure that you are keeping to whatever routine you're committed to? That's, that's a good question. We, we've had times where one of us was really into it and the other person was kind of like not, and we were kind of going solo. But lately, I think, I think our goal generally is to work out together. Um, usually when we go for runs now, we go separately. Mm-hmm. Like we might start together and warm up and then he takes off. Cause he, he is a much faster runner than I am. And yeah. if we're going to be pushing ourselves, we have to go separately. Mm-hmm. But when we go to the gym, we, we, we go together, you know, we might be on different machines or lifting different weights, of course, but we, we try to go to the gym together as much as possible. We try to take yoga classes together. Um, and I think it's, I don't know, a big part of it is holding each other accountable. And that's why we like to go together, but Mm -hmm. we also have very similar, similar schedules. Yeah. That works out. Well, I think it's nice whenever a couple can incorporate, fitness and healthy habits as part of your together time as well, because it's so easy to be busy and then add fitness in as another thing you Mm -hmm. have to do in the day when you don't get to, and it takes away from family. When if you do it together, it can almost be like a, literally a hot date, right? Of working out together. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, we can, uh, yeah, it's carving, carving time out together doesn't, um, doesn't have to result in, um, just going, you know, going to the movies as much as we like doing that. We, yeah, we can kind of have like these dates together to go to the gym. And, and then we, we often will stop at the grocery store afterwards and pick up food to make dinner together. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's a lot of that sort of couples time, um, but doing things that we enjoy, um, that we could easily do separately, but we decide not to. Yeah. So how did you decide to become a professor and why English? Um, I wasn't, so going, going back to when I was little, um, I have this memory of doing this and my mom, I think has pictures and I'm sure she has videos of me, uh, lining up all of my animals in my room and like, I had a little desk mm-hmm. and they would be at the desk and I'd be teaching them something. Yeah. So, we had the so same think, childhood. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think I I didn't know it at the time, but I always kind of had that that approach to life. I I think really what it comes down to is no matter what subject it was, I love learning new things, and then I like sharing that information with people. Mm-hmm. 
And it doesn't always have, I don't think it had to be in the format, sort of the traditional classroom format. It just kind of turned out that way. But I, you know, I just really like sharing experiences with people where there's a focus on learning something and then talking about it. So I think that I kind of gravitated toward those kinds of activities. Mm-hmm. And my, my very first job was as a private tutor when I was in high school. And I taught, I actually tutored in math. Um, not that I could tell you very much about math anymore. <laughs> anymore. Um, but I, I tutored in, I think, pre-algebra and geometry and algebra um, and maybe algebra too. And I, I would go to classmates' houses and, you know, a couple times a week and get paid that way. I started in, in um, college, I started tutoring as an avid tutor. Mm-hmm. So I went back to my old high school, which had an AVID program, and um, I, I was certified as an AVID tutor, did a training for that, and I started tutoring. I, I think maybe it just kind of came easy to me, so that's why mm-hmm. I, I found myself doing that. And, um, and then when – but I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do for a career, and when I met – Matt, he had just started a PhD program in English at UC Riverside. Uh, One of his professors, who he was really close with, um, was going to be teaching a class, uh, a literature class on James Joyce's Ulysses. And see, I was a junior in college at that time, and I hadn't taken any English classes in college. I had, I kind of had tested out of some some of the writing courses. Mm -hmm. So, so when I spoke to Matt and I spoke to his professor, they really encouraged me, Hey, you have electives, take an English course, like just take it for fun. And I took that English lit course and I remembered how much I loved reading and how much I just loved fiction and analyzing fiction. And I actually, at that point, decided to pick up a minor in English just because I liked it. Um, and then when I was getting close to graduating, I still had no idea what I was going to do. My major was in anthropology, but I didn't really see myself pursuing that any further. I didn't, it was interesting to me, but I didn't really see myself um, becoming an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, I think I hit that, that roadblock that a lot of young people hit when they're getting ready to graduate from college. They're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah. So. I went to grad school, <laughs> which is, I, I think, pretty common for, for a, lot of, a lot of people. Um, I was like, you know, I'm just going to study more. I just, I, I'm not ready to go out <laughs> into the real world, and I'm just going to take more classes. And I ended up to, uh, going to Cal State Fullerton for English. Um, and that's where I learned that I really could see myself not teaching literature, but teaching reading and writing mm-hmm. at the college level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's sort of by happenstance how I got to where I am today. I didn't realize how much we had in common. So for people, for everyone listening, you and I have been friends for about five years oh. now. Um, yeah. Your husband and my boyfriend literally lived on the same street when they were like five. 
And um, I think Jesse is the oldest person Matt knows out of our current friends, actually. Yeah, it's crazy how how far some of these guys yeah. go back, and them in particular. So you know, I've always, I've known mm-hmm. you through that, and we have a really great social circle, and there's a lot of couples, and I yeah. love that. As much as the guys get along, the women do too, and we're all just kind of friends Absolutely. together. And I didn't realize until you're sharing your story how much our stories are aligned in regards to setting up our animals and giving classes and telling them what to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, and I was a, my minor was anthropology because I love that stuff. Like if I, if I, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I keep debating going back and getting a PhD in it because either that or mm-hmm. like, um, like a more like social economics, uh, approach because I love yeah. looking at the, patterns of of people in particular and where they go and why mm-hmm. and how that impacts them and honestly it's why I'm doing this because I love hearing the examples of like how people ended up here and how not just literally where they ended up but mentally and spiritually and community wise like how it mm-hmm. all comes together and and keeps moving cuz it's not there's always the people that break the statistics and those are the people I find most fascinating like how did you get out um, yeah, the, I think the human interest part. Yes. Um, I mean, you're right. That's what you're doing with this podcast, and that's what you're doing with the other aspects of your project. Um, but that human interest angle is is something that, yeah, I, I think that makes so much sense why mm-hmm. why that would, you would be drawn to this sort of area. And I think that's why I love reading. Like, I, I, like I, I do like fiction, but mm-hmm. I tend to end up reading more nonfiction or autobiographies and um, there's just, mm-hmm. I mean, there's people are fascinating and there's so many great stories out there, whether they came from someone's beautiful mind or they were reality. Yeah. Do you find you, so you find yourself reading a lot of nonfiction these days? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Me too. I'm actually hungry for good fiction. So I, I've started going mm-hmm. back and going through classics I haven't read. Um, and just like going back into that space. Cause I, there's a lot of, for me to like a nonfiction book, it takes a lot. Um, yeah. So I can be a little bit of a butthead in regards to what I like to read. Um, mm-hmm. Partly because I have a story. Like, there's so much to learn. I don't want to just read. I want to learn and read. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, sometimes I feel like reading fiction, if it's, a, I mean, obviously, if it's a really enjoyable story, you you become immersed in that world. But yes. With non with nonfiction, it's, it's more of there's I feel like there's more of an option for learning something new whether it's about a person or an idea or an event Mm -hmm. um so or like how to grow ourselves you know that self-help category even if that's not the the word that I might use um I think that that's what kind of I'm drawn to lately as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well obviously there's so many books I recommend we have a whole section on the powerfulladies.com that's all tools and resources relating to books we have of course everything else under the sun as well but books is the part that (laughs) I'm passionate about because I I love the fact Uh that if you know how to read you can learn and meet and travel like anywhere you want Mm -hmm. and there's been quite a few guests I've had in the podcast who don't like reading and I'm like what about audiobooks they're like no and I am like I'm baffled like I have nothing else to say and I imagine as a professor for college students where an English class is a requirement often 
And you're probably, for people who it's required for, are not the people like you and I who were nerding out and reading and liking to do English. Yeah. Um, it's for people who maybe struggled in it. So how do you... Um, how do you handle that as a person who loves reading when you inter- when you meet people that hate English, hate writing, hate reading? Yeah, that's a that's exactly um, the the big question that <laughs> that we have to answer um, as educators um, in English specifically. There's, I mean, I I have so many students that have said that they've never read a book ever. I mean, it seems kind of mind mind-blowing because you're supposed to have read books in high school and middle school and elementary school. But I think that a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of people, um, young people especially just don't connect with a lot of the required reading. So they Mm -hmm. just don't do it or they feel like they they did it, but they didn't really understand it. So they don't really count that as having read books. Interesting. yeah, it's and and then often we see students who struggle with, of course, the writing aspect because they're not readers, mm-hmm. um, and the only the only texts that they really see are very short short pieces, not always um, pieces written very eloquently, um, and so they're kind of just skimming the surface of text and not really diving into the material, um, the way that, yeah, the way that you and I and other avid readers, um, really have had in terms of experience. So really the key is to try to figure out, well, what kind of books can I share with my students that I think they would really like? Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I assign, when I assign books, a lot of what we do is actually nonfiction in college composition courses now. And, so I try to choose topics that are what I think are interesting to me and I, I'm very passionate about, but also that I think are relatable to a wide variety of people. And then I try to find articles and longer texts that I think students will be able to dive into and at least see themselves in in some, some place, or at least they'll be able to learn something from. Because mm-hmm. um, if, if they don't find it interesting, if I can't do that, or at least offer that partially, then the same thing happens. And then they don't really connect with the reading and they don't really do it. And they don't really grow as readers and writers ultimately don't pass the course or they do. And they, but they, they keep on struggling quite a bit. What's a book that you've provided that has really gotten the class excited recently? So let's see. Um, In my freshman, like 101 level courses, Mm-hmm. Um, I've chosen the past couple of years, I've chosen to write about the theme of food. Just like, Ooh. just like it started off as a very broad topic of, uh, of food because I like food and I, I like <laughs> <laughs> that topic. And it's obviously something that uh, everyone um, has to have. And a lot of people, um, I mean, everybody has something to say about it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I read I think it was a year ago, but I read a book called Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. Okay. And um, it is a book, yes, about eating animals. Um, it's not a book necessarily, uh, it's not an argument for vegetarian, vegetarianism per se, but um, ultimately he wrote that book because when he um, found out he was going to be a father, he, he was like, what do I, what do I 
feed my son. Like, you know, he, he was always interested in food, but he wasn't really sure. Um, or he wasn't always committed to a particular diet or lifestyle. And when he decided he was going to have to like answer these big questions for his child, he decided to investigate our food system. And so the focus of that book is, is all of the information he learned about the way specifically animals are raised in our um, country in the industrialized food system. Mm-hmm. Which and is horrifying most of the time. Which is, which is horrifying. It's horrifying just to read about it. Um, let alone watch videos, you know, undercover videos of what, what goes on in our food system. But yeah. just, just reading about it itself is, is eye-opening. And so I, that's one of, the, one of the few books that I teach in my freshman 101 class. And I, I let my students know ahead of time, if you're going to take me for this course, it is about reading and writing, but the topic is food. And we are going to be learning things that are really going to make you see food differently. So that's, their, that's the warning before they take the class because um, not everybody is ready for that. or Not, not everybody wants to know what's mm-hmm. in their food or how animals specifically are raised or what happens to the environment. Um, so, but I, I think a lot of, so many of my students appreciate that and they, I think most of them end up reading the whole book um, because it is interesting and it's fairly easy to read. It's, it's, it's written in the first person and it's journalistic reporting. So even though there was a lot of information and facts and all these statistics about our food system, it's, it's really accessible, I think, mm-hmm. to people of all, all levels. Yeah, there's a, there's a documentary that just came out. I haven't watched it yet, but there's a documentary called Eating Animals. I think it's on Netflix. Um, and it is, it is specifically about that, that book or the information in the book. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my next personal yeah, project is to kind of watch that and um, maybe some of the other documentaries that are on Netflix related to food. I'm obsessed with them all. Like, I'm excited that you said that there was yeah. a new one that came out because I think I've watched them all, whether it's like <laughs> pro-vegan, pro-carnivore, keto, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. um, anti-fast food, anti-sugar, why alcohol is bad. Like, I've watched all of them because I find it so <laughs> fascinating. So yeah, because they're all backed by different versions of science and different versions of reporting. Right. And I'm a firm mm-hmm. believer in, you know, watch get all the information from the different sources and somewhere in the middle is like the truth so it's i love it i like i wish there were more food-based documentaries available so i could watch more of them at least well-made ones there have been a few that i've started and been like nope i think there will be i think well i think i agree i think there will we will continue to see more and more but especially if you watched all of them but yeah you should watch animals (laughs) I mean, I say, I say that without having watched it myself, but I'm sure it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, oh, have you seen What the Hell? Yes, I love that one. Is it okay? Would you recommend it then? Oh, yeah. It's one of the best ones. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. That's, that's, that's the one that I, I mean, that's the one that my students have seen and I haven't. And um, I, I really feel like I should. That's my, that's my next step. I've done some of the reading, but now I need to like watch documentaries. Because I feel like, they really help tell a story differently than the books do or the just articles. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they really, and they just provide, they provide the images and the faces uh, to the people in, in involved in this sort of research and 
in the various industries, you have all the interviews with the farmers and, and yes, I, yep. I feel like it's compelling in a different way. And I think that would be really, um, that's going to be my summer project. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. I know Jesse gets so frustrated because if, if I choose between being entertained or learning something, I always uh-huh. choose learning something. So if yeah. we're going to like sit down together and watch TV, I'm always like a documentary. Can we learn something? And he's like, yeah. can't we just watch like, a war movie or something else. And then, um, <laughs> can't we just watch like a, a romantic comedy or something? Right. Which I wouldn't necessarily be against, but if I like, if there's a choice of, you know, they have so much information now on whether it's YouTube mm-hmm. that we're watching things on or Netflix of like learning something fascinating. Like, um, even I love right now the Will, where Will Smith is narrating the, um, strange blue planet, I think it's called or, Oh. I'm messing it up, but it's on Netflix. It's he's the host, and it's talking about different parts of how the Earth works, and mm-hmm. from the point of view of astronauts who have seen it oh. from space, and like the impact that's made on their life. But it's also very, it's a very uh, digestible way to learn about a lot of science mm-hmm. that we don't talk about a lot. It's called One Strange Rock. One Strange Rock. Okay, yeah. thank you. Oh, Jordan. and that's on Netflix. Yes, it's awesome. Okay, that's mm-hmm. okay. I'll check that out. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about because it's a passion of mine is the mm-hmm. education system in the U.S. and mm-hmm. what works, where it's broken, and you being a professor, especially for freshmen, and seeing kind of what is delivered to you. Like, what surprises yeah. you and where do you see opportunities for improvements? In the past few years, uh, well, I've been teaching eight years. because This is my eighth year um, teaching college. And um, the thing that often comes up in conversations with colleagues is, you know, a lot of students aren't prepared. And that, I think that especially happens at the community college level uh, because community college is open to anyone. And um, a lot of students are, re- are what we call re- returning students. So they've taken breaks or they've worked um, or they've, um, I guess that's about it. They've just taken, some of them have taken huge breaks they, uh, or they never attended college and now they're in their 40s, 50s or 60s and they're attending college. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for some of those students, they just feel like it's been ages since they've been students and they don't really they feel very behind and they, and uh, have forgotten a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have other students who, for whatever reason, um, decided to go to community college. It could be because they, they didn't take all the re- required courses to get into a four-year university or high school, um, or they didn't, they just didn't have to grade. Um, but they they feel compelled to go to school for various reasons, either because social pressures like you have to go to you have to go to school or family pressures, um, or they just don't know what else to do, so mm-hmm. they go to they go to college. And so, especially at the community colleges, we see just students with a variety of uh, abilities, writing abilities initially, mm-hmm. and there's always a question of well, how do we catch you know, quote unquote, catch up some of the students who um, really struggle with writing, with generating ideas. Uh, they struggle with understanding main ideas in, in 
whatever they're reading. Um, their, maybe their grammar is, you know, their sentence structure is sort of difficult to read and we have to help them articulate better. So the question is, well, what happened? And I think at the college level, we kind of moved away from trying to answer what happened and just what can we do now to mm-hmm. make them feel prepared and to help, help students feel confident, more confident as readers and writers and to ha- help them understand how to do academic research yep. um, at the college level. So I think that now a lot of us are a little less concerned about what happened. That's, that's kind of being answered by K through 12 educators with the common core that has sort of taken place the past few years. Mm -hmm. And for people Um, who don't know, what is common core? Common core. And I don't know that much about it uh, myself, but common core is a kind of a, a national reform of education that's taken the place of no child left behind. Okay. So it's, it's a lot of changes in the actual required curriculum of kindergarten through high school. And it was developed by educators themselves uh, by, you know, it it was kind of like, from what I understand, taken upon um, by elementary school teachers, middle school, high school teachers who wanted to develop curriculum that they thought would actually better prepare students to go to high school, or sorry, to go to college. They, I think K through 12 educators were very aware that a lot of the students were graduating very unprepared. And when they got to college, they were really struggling. Mm-hmm. And at the college level, there was this idea that we're not going to change our standards. So what happened is a lot of students just really, really struggled in college and would drop out, or they would just be there for years trying to catch up. Um, to meet that st- that high standard of college, mm-hmm. so Common Common Core was that's the answer to what's going wrong at the lower levels and how do we better prepare students to get to college and succeed. Um, and what we've been doing on the college side is trying to accelerate. Um, how should I say this? I try to accelerate what the students um, are actually doing um, in the classrooms because a lot of students are placed in what are called remedial classes where, yeah, they have to do all the catching up. And what we've also found is those students, they they take all these remedial classes for two, three, three years or so. And then they have, then they get to take their general ed. And by the time they graduate from college, some, some people are in college for a handful of years, like, five, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. And that's not really helpful. Um, Again, because a lot of students just end up dropping out um, because of just how long it's taking and they're discouraged. And maybe Um, bored. And, and very bored. Yeah. Because, and, and yeah, it's just not motivating to feel like I, I grab, I spent all this time in school and now I'm in college. I'm going to be here forever. Um, I don't, and, and they're not really taking classes they're interested in. They're taking all of those required courses. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like I've lost the thread a little bit. <laughs> what, was the, what was your original question? What What's surprising you about the students mm-hmm. that you see and where do you see there could be improvements in the education system? So I think we are seeing a lot of improvement. Um, 
What's happened recently in California is there was this legislation that was passed called AB 705. And that legislation basically, um, it requires colleges, community colleges especially, it requires colleges to essentially um, catch students up as quickly as possible. And that means changing the curriculum. That means having more interesting courses and having more challenging courses right off the bat for students. It, it's, it's meant to, get, to keep, prevent students from dropping out those first couple of years because they're stuck in the remedial classes. Mm-hmm. So I think that is probably one of the largest changes that we're seeing. Um, and it's, it's a lot of work, but in my actual classroom, I'm seeing huge improvement. So I basically, I will get students who tested fairly low in terms of reading and writing skills and they come into the classroom and they, they feel like I, I'm an awful writer. I'm a slow reader or I can't find anything interesting to read. Um, I suck at English Yeah, and, and I, on the one hand, know that some of their schools, some of their schools are going to be a little bit lower and they're going to struggle in certain areas. But if I can just get them to write a lot and to read a lot and for us to have kind of high, higher minded conversations about the reading, um, I get more student engagement. And then those students start to see themselves like, oh, actually, I can write. Actually, I do have something to say. Mm-hmm. And they, they start producing college level, freshman 101 level essays, you know, three, four, five, six pages, when previously they were only writing a paragraph or two. And I think, I think, yeah, I think increased motivation and paying attention to what really prevents students from succeeding. There's been a lot of work with that lately at the college level. And I feel like we're, we're going to start seeing the, the results um, mm-hmm. in the next few years. I think in any area, whether it's reading or writing or math, sciences, mm-hmm. anywhere where you have an idea in your head that you're not good at something or the first mm-hmm. material has been presented to you by maybe a less capable teacher or at least mm-hmm. one that didn't match with your learning style. I mean, it, I, I would assume the first struggle is just getting you out of that mindset, kind of like what you're doing yeah. with your students. because. There's what you're saying to yourself about it. And then there's also the disconnect of not knowing how it's going to apply for things that you mm-hmm. actually care about. Like that's, I, that's, that's the biggest thing, like relatability mm-hmm. and what you just said about mindset, like actually having the mindset that I can do this and I'm not just this, this person who is awful at school or um, awful at reading or writing. Like I actually have the ability within myself to do this. I just have to learn some of the techniques to do it. And then I need to put it to practice. Yeah. I think that's a big, I think that's, you really hit that on the head. I think that's like the the number one strategy as an educator is to get students to see that about themselves. I feel really lucky because in my own education experience, when in fourth grade, I got tested for a gifted program that they were doing where we were in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we, I mean, it wasn't, it didn't occur to me as any big thing, but anyone who qualified got to go to this special class once a day. And I never understood why every class wasn't taught this way because it was actually more yeah. inclusive because we would, 
pick a topic for the semester and we would do more hands-on things. We would do more discussions. We were treated a little bit more like adults. And I'm like, why is every class not like this? Like, there's no reason why this should be for people who scored so- something in a certain quiz. But it was like all right. inclusive learning where you got, got to ask questions and argue and they encourage you mm-hmm. to challenge the first thing you saw and they encouraged you to be creative and like no question was frowned upon unless it was like okay no more that's like the third question and that's like really a dirty humor joke like we have to move on um so (laughs) but to me it was so cool to see that you could you got excited about learning about stuff again because it wasn't just sitting there and taking notes and Mm -hmm. and then from that like I think back to my next experience of being in college and trying to figure out using Excel. And like, I didn't understand what, like the data set that we were working with. So I never under, I never got like how Excel worked until I started using it in at work. And now like I'm a junkie for spreadsheets because they allow you to do so many things easier and faster. And, you know, and so it blows my mind that the things I hated between statistics and mm-hmm. Excel classes, because of how they were taught, where no one explained to me, like, no one started by what do you care about and then showed me how this could apply and make it faster, cooler, better. Instead, they yeah. just said, like, here's a data set about, you know, car sales parts. And you're like, I don't give a fuck about car sales parts. Like, why do I care about how these have to sort? Plus, you're not in the business, so you don't really know the logic behind mm-hmm. why. You're just learning how to move things around a spreadsheet, and that's just so boring. Like, my personal opinion is that there we are often, especially for younger people, like kids, like, I worry from my own personal experiences that we don't make it entertaining enough. And when, especially when you look at how many sources there are today for learning things, um, there's a lot of competition for keeping people's attention. And I, I hope that education is is staying with that pace. I think you know, that's exactly right. I mean, it doesn't, there, there has to be a balance between being entertained and learning. Yes. Because, you know, that it just can't be just a whole litany of concepts and formulas and, and tools that don't really have context that's provided for you. So, you're right. Good teachers are the ones that can contextualize the material and say, let's look at the big picture first or, or second, but we need to look at the big picture at some point and see <laughs> yeah. how, how it like connects to other ideas and things that you've learned. And, you know, yeah, we as learners, we need to be able to recognize how it's related in our own lives, mm-hmm. but it, it helps so much to have, I know a teacher up there offering you different perspectives and helping you really see how they're connected. Like it's just to, here's the information and here are the different patterns um, that we could put the information in or the different skill sets and you can see the different uses. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I felt that way with calculus. I took calculus in high school. And like I said earlier, I was always, decent at like doing computations. I was, I was good in math, whatever that meant until high, until, you know, taking pre-calculus and calculus in high school, because then I just kind of lost the context. I didn't really, like, I didn't really understand 
what I was doing other than just memorizing formulas and mm-hmm. doing, doing computations. And, you know, to this day, I feel like, I mean, I couldn't tell you what it's used for. I, I know it's useful, um, <laughs> not, in, not in my field, but it is, it is a useful thing, but I don't really know what it's for still. And I, I feel like that was the point where I kind of didn't, didn't see the point in my life. And I, that was the last math class I ever took. So um, I just listened to I, an amazing TED Radio Hour podcast uh-huh. where the topic is don't fear math. And <laughs> it's so great because you have these people who love math and they get how it describes the world. And one guy called it uh-huh. math, the notes that um, plays the sym- symphony of the universe. Oh, and, wow. Right? That sounds really cool. Well, right. Because like things that we think are cool, like all like mm-hmm. the fractal images and, um, mm-hmm. oh, what's it called? The, um, where the flower and the shell, like everything has the same. Um, the Fibonacci? Yes. Sequence. Yes. The Fibonacci yeah. sequence. Like that's cool. And it's all math. Yeah. yeah. And you, and how you described it just now, you know, it's, it's a way of understanding our universe. That's what, that's, it's a, that's what math is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know that much, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I got to check out those podcasts. That's, it's really good. That sounds really fun. Yeah. I was super, I got sucked in because I remember being, having a time when I loved math and it was, I, it made mm-hmm. sense. And I know, I knew how, to your point, I knew how it made sense in my world. And then mm-hmm. we started doing algebra mm-hmm. and I kept asking my teacher, what is X? Like, I do not understand. What is this X supposed to be? And I wish, I wish in that moment that that teacher had like transformed it and given a real world example instead of Mm -hmm. just saying like, it's unknown. And I was like, my little brain was going so stuck (laughs) on why we were solving problems for stuff we don't know for things that we don't understand. I was like, I don't get this. Like, whereas if she had explained it as like, this is just the missing piece of the puzzle, it probably would have made sense to me that like, oh, right, we're missing this piece and that's why we're doing this this pro, um, problem. And yeah. I, it took me, I struggled that whole year. It was the first time I had struggled in math. And then the next year I had to um, take a like an algebra two or whatever it was. And luckily I had this amazing math teacher that like got me back on track, but um, I'll never forget like raising my hand over and over again and being so annoying. Like, yes, I understand everything you just said, and I could copy it, but I still do not understand what is X. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure yeah, this poor woman I, like just wanted to go home and have cocktails with her girlfriends versus explain <laughs> X to me. Yeah, I think that I think that's very similar to my experience, and and I remember liking my math teachers and feeling like they did a good job doing so much. Um, like I, I always felt intrigued in class and I, I wanted to keep learning, but I just, yeah, I could feel my, my brain hurting and I could feel it. I could feel that I had all these questions and they weren't really being answered. So I just kept on doing my homework and taking the test and memorizing formulas. But I, I kind of told myself, well, this is the last thing I'm going to do math. Mm-hmm. I will continue taking classes because it just, like, I understand the point of statistics. I really like that class, but I just couldn't see the point anymore of taking those other courses. And, and maybe, you know, 
that's okay. Uh, you know, there are other people that can do, do calculus and, right. and use that. <laughs> um, but as, as someone, as a learner, I, I, I do feel like that's an area that I would love to go back to. Same thing with chemistry. Like there, yes. I feel like I really struggled in that course too and don't really quite understand the chemical world, which is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I don't know, those are, those are classes I would like to take now. And may, maybe my brain would better understand them and maybe I would have a teacher that also could ex- could contextualize the material a little bit better for me. Or even just have the context yourself in some things, right? So you get asked yeah. the questions differently because mm-hmm. I think it's so hard when you don't know what you don't know to even ask the questions, right. to, to make the connections yeah. between what's on the board and where your head's at because yeah. it looks like a foreign language sometimes. And if you don't have one word that you know how to translate, you're like, well, mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'll ask the next guy. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just sit here. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe we'll get to point at pictures soon, and it'll it'll make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I find really interesting is how in the U.S. we underpay all of our teachers across the board, and oh yeah, they are such an influence and factor in not just current um, generations, but how the U.S. is going to look in generations from now. And I I find it so interesting how other countries like Finland, who are really well known for, you know, making it be very competitive to be a teacher and like well paid. um, Like, I don't get it why we think in the U.S. that like teaching should almost be a volunteer career path. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and I know it varies from state to state. Um, and the one thing that is very um, helpful is that we still have unions that help fight for teachers to get mm-hmm. better pay mm-hmm. and more benefits and smaller class sizes, um, because that also means that we, you know, we spend less time. If we have smaller class sizes, we spend less time grading and and doing classroom management and we're essentially getting paid more for what we're doing in that sense too mm-hmm. um it, without the unions we would have none of that but even so it shouldn't it shouldn't take a union fighting so hard to just get what is what seems to be deserved you know yeah and yeah i mean it, that's that's the thing is I've seen on Facebook and, you know, I've seen those little, those like little worksheets that get passed around about like how much a teacher is actually paid, which is hardly anything. If you, if you factor in all of the work outside of the classroom and, you know, we don't, yeah, we technically, a lot of teachers get summers off and holidays and um, weekends, but first of all, we're working on the weekends and, most of the time, if we aren't teaching a summer school class, we are using the summer to prepare for the whole school year. And we're using the summer to go to conferences and to read and do professional development work so that we become better educators. Do research. So we really don't. Yeah. You know, we have to, if we're going to stay at, you know, keep abreast and on all of the material, um, so that we don't just stick, get stuck in our, in our own, our old ways. Um, we have to always be learning new things and that happens year round. So 
and we're not getting paid for that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't, I, I mean, it, it does feel like the only thing we can do is just keep standing up for what we're doing and, and saying, Hey, we, we need to be, we need to put more into education and, you know, public education is paid for by the state, paid for by our, through our taxes and all that. Um, but we could, we could allocate more money to education and we should, I mean, the U S is not number one when it comes to education, yeah. as you said, um, we're, and it's not consistent countrywide. There are some states and, and some districts that are able to, to devote more money, more resources in providing, in paying their teachers and in having better equipped classrooms and smaller class sizes. And some districts and, and some states really don't have that. So even education across the country is, is extremely varied and some, you know, some some children, some students get really bad educations in the U.S. and that that needs to be taken care of. We need we just need, we do need to put more money into education for sure. Well, and I think that there's also the misconception that as a teacher, you're just there to provide material. But the reality right. is that as a teacher, you're you're teaching students, you're part counselor, you're part mm-hmm. cheerleader, like when you. Teachers are people that are approved through our culture to go to with your problems and to right. to tell big things to, right? Like a teacher is a safe person that you're allowed to tell if, mm-hmm. if shit's going on in your life. And I don't think that stops at regardless of what age you're teaching. And I don't think we put into effect um, that teaching isn't just going to work and doing your job and coming home. It's being committed yeah. to these people having opportunities and having their best life and getting it and not just like passing people, but like having each individual get it before they move on. And it's so, it's so much more work in the sense that besides all the prep work and staying on top of things and being, you know, an expert in your field, you also need to be able to walk into a classroom and like leave anything that you've got going on in your life outside Mm -hmm. because you have to just be like a clean slate for them. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't need to do that as an accountant or as a CEO. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe, yeah, I don't think it's, it's not the same. I mean, I think that if you're, if anyone's going to be good at their job, they do kind of have to leave that stuff out. Yeah. But, but you're right, you know, because being a teacher, dealing with humans in, in that field is so much different than some other fields. Yeah. When we walk into the classroom, we can't, we we have to be fully present to, um, yeah, not just deliver the material and to execute, um, all the lessons for that day. And it's in, in, in a, in the correct pacing, we have to answer questions that students have. And then we have things, I mean, address all of the things that students have going on in their lives that prevent them from usually, you know, usually succeeding in the classroom. Like all of that stuff comes up. Um, you, you can tell this, you can tell that something's going on if a student is not turning the work in or, or not attending class often or on time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to talk to that student like, Hey, what's going on? Um, and you almost always, there's something to uncover and 
doesn't even have to be uncovered. They just come out and tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're right. We, we do kind of act as like counselors and mentors and friends. And I think that's why I really like teaching at the college level because I feel the least restricted in having that one-on-one um, kind of relationship mm-hmm. with my students. Um, that, that goes beyond just English teacher and student taking that class. But um, I feel like I can, I can be more than that to my students. And teaching at the college level, I really, you know, I, I'm dealing with people, again, that are like 18. Some students are younger, like 15 or 16, but they're either 18 or they go, I know I've had students that are in their 70s. Yeah. So I get to form those friendships and relationships with people. Um, but it is, it is, it is a lot more work as an educator than just, yeah, prepping and grading and teaching in the classroom. It's like so much more. Uh, completely. When you, I mean, every year must be so exciting for you to, to meet a whole new batch of students. What, you know, as you're seeing these new fresh faces coming in, what leaves mm-hmm. you f- feeling optimistic about where the world is going? Yeah, that's, that's the really cool thing is it's not even every year, it's every, every semester. So even every like 15 weeks or 20 weeks, I, I have a a bunch of new students. I mean, if I, if I'm teaching for four to five classes a semester, that's, you know, on average 120 new students every few months. So yeah. (laughs) Um, some students are repeat students, you know, I, I often, and, and Matt, Matt experiences this as well. Like it's nice to have the same student who took you last year or the previous semester, take your next class. Um, but for the most part, we just get to meet so many cool people. And um, I, maybe, maybe because I am a person that likes variety. I like that. And because I'm someone who likes people, I, I like getting to new, getting to know new people. Um, and then carrying that friendship or that relationship on past that semester. Um, so what's really exciting is when students come to the classroom and they get to offer something new um, that I have not experienced. You know, they, they get to teach me about new music or uh, new, new cool creative projects that they're doing. Um, and they get to teach me about what's going on in the world uh, that I may not know about because I'm in my little like bubble of work and, and my own, my own life. So mm-hmm. that's, that's something that is really um, kind of nice and, and is an advantage of just meeting so many people um, from all walks of life, life from different parts of the country, international students, um, people of all ages and, and backgrounds and religions and ethnicities. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's pretty cool. Obviously, when people think about, you know, revolutions and protest movements and like culture mm-hmm. changing, they always seem to start at the university space. Um, I think partly because that's where, you know, dialogue is encouraged and people are actually having debates every day. And yeah. you're also getting a mix of, you know, knowledge and hope and aspirations like all combined. It's like a good... um you know, it's it's a good mixing pot of all the uh, rest parts of the recipe you need to get people to want to take action and want to change things. How has how have you seen the women's movement and Me Too and the other 
you know, concerns of the moment showing up on your campuses, maybe versus what we've seen on the media? That's interesting because, well, for one, I'm an adjunct, so I don't unfortunately get to spend as much time on one campus as I would like mm-hmm. um, because I am kind of bouncing, bouncing around from campus to campus. So I am a little sometimes out, out of the loop uh, in terms of campus events and organizations. Um, and I think also because I, I teach at, two of the schools I teach at are community colleges, there is a little less organized activism. Yep. Than, than we would see at a four-year university. Um, that being said, I think I see a lot of the activist mindset come out in just dialogue with students. So they, you know, students will be writing about it. They'll be writing about a particular topic uh, or a personal event that has happened to them, and you get to see their mindset about or their perspective about things like Me Too or Black Lives Matter and um, their understanding of the organizations and the movements and their part in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know that a lot of my students are very active, like in these sort of big group um, organizations, but you see it play out more in their lives. Um, so, and, and I don't know, that's, that's something that I, I wonder if that is, because it's a community college that I'm generally at, um, and because a lot of these students also work quite a bit, they work multiple jobs, they have families, they have kids, um, so they kind of have less time to organize and, and be part of that. Um, but it's certainly a conversation that we're having quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, I know a lot of English teachers, they choose topics in their classrooms that are more activist-oriented on the surface, um, they talk a lot about gender and and um, and race and um, equality and things like that. And I kind of stay away from those topics on the surface in my class, mm-hmm. um, almost because I feel like it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, or I can't choose just one to talk about. So sure, like <laughs> it's a, a little unwieldy for me. Um, but there's plenty of room in our conversations about other things to talk about those topics. Like when we talk about food um, in my freshman 101 writing courses, we talk about workers' rights. We talk about immigration um, just because so many, so many people that are in our food industry or, you know, industrial agricultural industries are immigrants, um, Mm -hmm. legal and otherwise. And we talk about, you know, the, the poor treatment of workers and the lack of pay and the lack of repercussions for, co- for companies that hire illegal immigrants, you know, all the repercussions are on the, the people themselves, the employees and not on the companies. We talk about environmentalism. Um, so we, I think we, we cover a lot of that by talking about other topics and students yeah. are in, interested. In, and I think the younger generation really does have a pretty strong sense of what needs to happen, sort of what are, what is privilege, what in, inequities do we see in our society and how can we maybe fix them? I, I feel like, we're, I feel like that comes up quite a bit in our conversation. Well, and I imagine, you know, when you're in first, we do not give community colleges enough credit for what they provide 
um, mm-hmm. as a resource to our communities, not only for having more affordable education, but accessible education for right. the whole variety of people that, that you know, you've been mentioning. Um, and I think that I'm glad that the conversation seems to be changing. Now, I don't know if it's changing everywhere because, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, in Massachusetts mm-hmm. and Pennsylvania, where, you know, going to a four-year degree was what everybody did or college. And mm-hmm. everyone was shooting to get into a premier institution, if not Ivy League. Like, it was that's just what you did. And education yeah. was like the thing. So like if, if you're out in Boston, it's very common to meet someone and be like, cool, where'd you go to school? Because that's what every everyone did. And so it kind of right. gives you a reference point for like, what are they about and where do they come from? And when I moved to California, it was the first time that I had experienced a work environment where everyone had not gone to college. And I was like, what? Like, this still happens? Yeah. Like, how did you get a job? Yeah. <laughs> just just because I was brought up through the, the thinking that, like, you had to go to college to get a job. And mm-hmm. with how much it's cost and how how it's putting so many people into debt now, and then they don't even end up using that degree, I really think that there's so much more opportunity for people to take advantage of a community college experience to figure out more of what you want, to have an affordable education, and not feel the pressure of experimenting with with education and knowing that you're spending so much money on it. Um, because everyone doesn't need to go to college anymore to have the life mm-hmm. that they want. Um, but the reason I was going on a tangent about this is that, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many people today that are saying, not, maybe not so many, So there are some loud voices that are saying how College and universities are this like cesspool of forced liberalism. Yeah. And (laughs) I always am just like, what? Like, I don't think that's accurate. And maybe I'm naive and maybe I don't know anything. (laughs) But I feel like if everyone, if most people who are going into politics have gone to school, we Mm -hmm. couldn't be producing an equal number of diverse opinions yeah. if everyone was going, if every college was a cesspool of liberalism. Liberalism. A, I don't know yeah, why I can't say that word. Great, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, I mean, if if people are going, to, going through school um, and coming out with a variety of opinions and perspectives, then it just doesn't make sense that uh, college is just, you know, fr- created by and for the liberal elite and that were educators are brainwashing, you know, young, the, the youth to um, vote Democrat or become some sort of, you know, come out as like liberal in terms of political affiliation. Um, I mean, I think that there is some truth to when you go to college, you, well, there's, there's complete truth. And when you go to college, you are exposed to a variety of ideas. Yeah. And sometimes that means that people, often that means people change and, and they, they no longer think they're the way that they used to. I mean, that's kind of the goal. Right. Um, Regardless of where you end up, that's the goal. Just to have new ideas put into your uh, frame of reference. Right. And to be, to be able to be a critical thinker and evaluator of, of 
life and of society and of the problems that we encounter. And, and we, we use college not just as, a, just as a way to get that degree so you can get hired, but it's to expand our minds. That's mm-hmm. what education is really about. So I think, I think that that is sometimes a talking point that you mentioned of some, some people uh, who don't really stop and think about what college is really meant to do. Yeah. Um, and certainly there are going to be a lot of liberal professors, especially in the humanities. I mean, I know plenty of, you know, I'm fairly liberal and I know plenty of other, uh, educators that personally have very liberal ideas. And I think that does seep into the classroom sometimes, uh, and maybe it can get away from some professors, but I don't also, I also don't think it's our job to be completely neutral. I mean, when I'm teaching, I, I try to stay away from like the political debate, yep. kind of politics in general, but there are some key issues that I think are important that we have to talk about. And um, I try to let students kind of find their own voice rather than imparting my beliefs on them. Right. Um, but my job also is to provide correct information and to help people locate that information. So if people are mis- misguided in their viewpoints, because of the wrong information, then I do think it's my job to point that out. Um, but it isn't my job to tell them how to th- or what to think, but it, but it is my job to tell them how to think or to teach them how to think. Yeah, and, and to create a space where having dialogue about differing opinions is okay. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it blows right. my we mind. We have to do that. Yes, and I don't understand why... We don't think, like, having the debate isn't the issue. Like, that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. So instead of having the discussions and the debates and allowing people to have different opinions and not make them wrong for it, but instead allow people to articulate them, we're just not having the conversations. And I'm like, I don't get this. Like, this is the opposite of what democracy is supposed to be. Yeah, we we have to have those conversations. And I... That is happening. Um, I, I beyond teaching English 101, I also teach um, like uh, usually like the next level English course as well, which is usually like a critical thinking course, and mm-hmm. that's that's where we do dive into more um, co- you know contemporary issues, and students students have the opportunity to talk about really kind of those deep, more controversial issues, mm-hmm. um, and to write and to write about them and. Um, again, it's about facilitating that, that dialogue um, and helping, helping people find their voice and, rec- and kind of examine what they believe and why that is. Um, it isn't to say that their beliefs are wrong, but it's to say, hey, let's, let's take a step back and examine what beliefs do we hold and why, and do we have information that actually supports those beliefs, mm-hmm. or are they just sort of unfounded opinions? And can we let go of them if we're presented with new information? Um, and that, that, that dialogue, that discussion has to happen. And it, it goes so much more beyond a political conversation, even though so many topics do come up in politics. Well, I think that's just natural because politics all ties back to the things we care about and the way the world works and the way that... right our communities interact. So I think it's it's mm-hmm. impossible to not have political conversations when politics is 
all of us, right? Like it's yeah. I mean, it's it's how we choose to govern ourselves, and so you're right. That's that it is very important mm-hmm. um, to just surviving in in today's world. Yeah. When you're not, um, you know, with Matt and doing keeping mm-hmm. healthy, and you're not grading papers or going to school, um, <laughs> what else are you doing that gets you excited and is for your own personal? like fun and development? Um, hmm, I feel like that takes up so much of my time. What you just <laughs> <listed>. um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I really, um, one thing that I used to do a handful of years ago with, with Matt um, is we got really into meditating mm-hmm. and using that as a practice um, to help become more present in our daily lives. So that's, that's, not something that I am currently doing, but it is something that I would like to get back into. Um, not because I feel that I lack focus or presence right now, but I just know the value in taking some time out every day to meditate and to just sit and, and to kind of have be, be thoughtless to clear mm-hmm. my mind. And that that's just uh, just like exercising daily or almost every day and eating healthy. That's just another practice that is super beneficial to my life. So that's something that I like to do to get back into. And I keep telling myself that and, um, but I have yet to carve out time to do that when I really, it's really easy to do actually. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of some other things. I'm also starting to read more again. Um, I admit that's, with all of the other stuff that I do with work and reading, uh, I kind of put that on a back burner sometimes. And so listening to more, more podcasts and starting to just pick up books again in the evening instead of just watching TV or something. Um, Mm -hmm. those are the things that I'm, I'm finding, I'm kind of finding myself going back to once again. Um, and I think, now, because I'm pregnant, I'm also spending a lot of time researching and, and talking to women, you know, who have, who, you know, not just women, but parents, but um, talking to my friends who have kids um, and kind of learning a lot about being a parent because that's all new to me. And I have this human that is about to, a new human that's about to enter um, our lives. So I think I'm spending a lot of time doing that lately, too. It's just like preparing myself to be a parent. Has being pregnant changed your perspective on things in the world or of yourself? Getting pregnant has really calmed me down quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been really appreciating sleeping a lot more. Yeah. And um, feeling very, very balanced um, because, I mean, I know balance is, is everything and balance is of how do I say that balance is just super crucial to living a healthy, happy life. Um, but now that I am not just taking care of myself, but another human, I think that's really like solidified that for me. And so, um, I feel, I feel much calmer and I feel, um, generally just softer. And Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I, I know it may not be clear on this podcast, but I feel like in general, I talk a lot less and I kind of try to listen to other people (laughs) a little bit more. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of, I feel like my my demeanor has changed a little bit Mm -hmm. um, 
for not not the worst for sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of perspective, I don't know if I don't feel like my perspective has changed much yet, but I I know it will. And I don't know what I don't know what that will look like, but I know it will once I have a kid. Um, yeah. I <laughs> once once I um, I have a human being out and about in the world that I have to take care of and. Um, to share that experience with my husband too, it will, it will, I'm we're really looking forward to it. So, yeah, I, we know that there's a, there's a lot to be learned, and that it's just this whole new adventure for us. But um, what that's going to look like, I don't know yet. Well, I think you guys are going to be awesome parents. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, of course, you're so um, generous and um, aware and compassionate as it is that uh, I imagine it's exactly how you would be with them. So. I'm excited to see you as parents. I'm excited to meet the baby and um, have more little humans that we get to spoil. I I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm we're excited and um, and that's what the cool thing is. Matt and I were never sure if we were going to have kids. You know, we met when we were young. We definitely um, it was it's definitely not a priority. Um, and when I met Matt, he was. Um, pretty sure he didn't, he didn't want to have kids. And I was okay with that. You know, I was like, well, I want to be with you. Like, and I have so many other things in my life that I want to do. Um, that's not even a, a concern of mine. Um, but now we're at this point where we, we did decide to have to start a family and to bring a child into this world. And I think it could be really easy to become very pessimistic about doing that, you know, mm-hmm. like, there, there can be can be very easy to just focus on all the scary things and the actual real problems that still exist today and, and new problems that are being created as we speak. But at the same time, I feel like I have, I have, we have the support of our families and we have so like a, a group of friends that are just like you, very supportive and loving and um, devoted to changing the world for the better that, I can't imagine that raising a, you know, raising a child in that environment is going to do anything except great things. And I don't know what, you know, I don't know. We're going to have a son. I don't know what he is going to be like exactly, but I just feel confident that he's going to be surrounded by people that are um, the best kind of people to be around and that he will, he will have such good role models beyond me and Matt, like well beyond us. Uh, that he could look to that really help guide him. And so that's, that's what I'm excited about. Um, yeah. In addition to just meeting him and getting to know his personality, like seeing how everyone sort of takes to him, which I think will be wonderful. Mm-hmm. We've been asking every guest where they fit on the powerful lady scale, zero being average everyday human and 10 being super powerful lady. How do you feel today and how do you feel on average? Um, wow. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I, I don't feel like I, I, okay. I feel like I walk through life very confident in my skin, very comfortable in my skin. Now I wasn't always like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of anxieties growing up. Um, I'll give you the long answer. Um, I wasn't diagnosed with OCD, but I'm sure that I was on some sort of spectrum when it came to having obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really suffered from sleeplessness and restlessness and existential anxiety 
Um, and when, when things didn't go my way, I really, really struggled, um, because I was just like perfectionist. Um, and something happened, like, I think a handful of things happened in my life, especially right, right around like 18 to 19 to 20. And I, I no longer feel sort of imprisoned by my type A OCD behavior, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. I feel like I, I can channel it for, for things that are very good for me and for others. Um, so I feel very comfortable in my, in my skin. And I think there's a lot of power that can come from being happy and, and feeling comfortable and feeling safe and able to socialize and communicate with others and to, and to stand up for myself. Um, I don't know how to answer your question of like a scale of zero to 10. Um, I feel like in terms of what I do with my life, it's not always big and spectacular. Um, I don't always find myself doing these huge sort of projects. Um, I don't ever see myself as getting famous. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that within the people that I know in my life, I feel like I, um, you're famous in our group. Yeah. Famous (laughs) and within our group. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel feel like people can come to me and talk to me about anything and that I come off as open and, and, um, always willing to try to help when I can. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I don't know that it doesn't really answer your question directly, but, um, I do feel powerful and I, in the sense that I feel very empowered by the people around me yeah. and don't feel like I have to struggle so much to just exist. And that to me, that means a lot now. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that it's really interesting to see how people respond to that question because everyone has been different. Uh-huh. And I, you know, what I want people to get is that being powerful doesn't mean anything grand or yeah. in you know celebrity status or mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Living a powerful life means that you're living a life that you're proud of, that you feel satisfied in, and that you feel like you are the one in the driver's seat versus something or somewhere someone else. And I, that's a great Great definition. <laughs> I, I really like that. Good. Lauren Bond stamped approved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if, if, with that definition, I'd say, yes, I feel very powerful. I really like that. <laughs> um, well, I think but, it's so important. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, because, I mean, my, my mission with Powerful Ladies is to make I can't go extinct. And yeah, there's... I am always inspired by the people who are doing so many amazing things for their family and friends and communities that don't Mm -hmm. get talked about. And we spend so much time talking about knuckleheads who (laughs) are either creating like a whirlwind of negativity or they're actually not Mm -hmm. doing anything. And I'm like, why are they the ones making any money? Like this is dumb. Like I would rather you know, be celebrating the people who are leaving the world a better place and doing it anonymously in the big scale because those are the people who actually leave a bigger mark behind and who are setting up whole communities to win. That that makes so much sense. I mean, 
maybe maybe we choose to focus on these other people that, like you said, create this whirlwind of negativity or aren't are just not doing much of anything. Um, maybe there's a reason that we dwell dwell on that. Maybe because we see potential in people, and mm-hmm. when they fail to meet that, um, we get frustrated, and then it becomes like a focus of ours. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. I mean, in, instead choosing to focus on the people that really make a difference and that are positive um, and loving and, and open-minded, um, those are the people that we should highlight. And I mean, that's absolutely what you're doing with this podcast and, and, and what other, I think, I think a lot of other people are doing too. Yes. There are some cool like uh, photography projects that focus on just, you know, cool humans. And, um, there's a, there's a lot of posi- positive, there's a lot of evidence of, of positive change mm-hmm. out in the world. If we just can look for it. Yes. Look for it and share it. Yeah. Yeah. So who are women or people in general that have been big influences on you and kind of carved out who you are today? Um, well, kind of in, in line with what we're saying, uh, a lot of just women specifically, um, but I mean, honestly, like you said, people, um, just women in my life that um, I am really just proud of what they're, what they're doing. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends are kind of at this point in their lives where they are, they are branching out, they are starting businesses and they are, um, they are, or they're going back to school while they're raising a child, um, by them, by themselves. You know, I have a handful of women in my life that I, that I can think of that are just really kind of killing it out there. And are doing it with like a good attitude and not always with a lot of resources either. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, I, I probably say that I draw a lot of my inspiration from just the women that I meet in my life um, that are like my friends mm-hmm. um, and who encourage me to do more with like with what I'm doing as well. Um, and it's not limited to just women. I mean, my, my husband, Matthew is, is someone who is just always like from the day that I met him, just such an intriguing person. And he, he, I feel like, I mean, I think the reason that he's such a good partner is that he always encourages me to be a better person and to like do the, do the right thing and to um, be as like strong and as healthy as I can be and not, not to use excuses when I, struggle with something. So, I mean, he, he certainly is a source of inspiration for me as well. And, um, yeah, I, I read a lot and I, and yeah. And so when I read a lot, I really take on those ideas and kind of integrate them into my own lives. But I'd say the people that really like touch me the most are just the people like my circle of friends that I really just am happy to have in my life. Me too. I feel so lucky and honored that I have had the privilege of having so many amazing people um, cross paths with me at all the different Mm -hmm. phases of my life and especially where I'm at right now. And, you know, I want want everyone to know that they can find their people. Sometimes it takes 
more work than other places, but um, yes, yeah, they're there. And I've also gone through phases where I felt really alone and mm-hmm. you know frustrated that I couldn't connect with the people that were around me. And then it just makes right. it that much sweeter when it's easy. I think you're, yeah, that's very true. I mean, there have been moments in my life where I don't, or I don't think I had. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't happy because I, I was in this very like isolated space because I didn't feel like the people that I was with, even if they weren't, you know, bad people, they just weren't my people. Mm -hmm. And that's a learning experience for sure. And you have to like learn within, learn for yourself who your people are and to learn to walk away when it, when it's not right. Yeah. Yep. And and it will happen. You know, you will meet. And if, if, if one is open, they will, they will very quickly meet people that they, um, really connect with and can learn from. And sometimes you can connect with someone and not learn very much from them. And sometimes you can learn a lot from someone that you just don't want to be around really. Um, (laughs) And so I think it's important to just recognize that and be appreciative for what, what you can take from that situation or or not take, but what you can, how you can grow from a situation in interacting with certain people. Um, But also learn that, you know, you will find your, your, those people out there that, that really help you grow and you help them and it's fun and, and you guys click on a lot of different levels. Um, and you, and you can be there for one another when times are hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think it happens and we can find that in a, in a partner. We can find that in a group of friends, siblings, um, our parents, like that's one thing that I really rediscovered is like, as an adult learning who my parents are. And of course they, they're constantly changing just like I am, but I'm always really thankful that I was raised by parents that really let me figure out myself. Mm-hmm. And now as an adult, it's really nice to kind of go back to them and be closer to them um, in a way that I, you know, maybe wasn't when I was in my late teens or early twenties when I was figuring myself out, they let me do that. They let me go and kind of just do my own thing. And they were always really just supportive and, and confident that I would find my, find my way. And now I can go back and spend time with them. And that's not parents are the same way. And I think we're, we're both pretty lucky to have people like them in our lives. Yes. There are a few questions that have come up a couple times from people yeah. following Powerful Ladies or even um, guests that we've had that I'd love to get your opinion on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is similar to what we were just talking about. So if someone is struggling with finding their people and maybe they move to a new place, what do you recommend for being an adult and finding new friends? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> that, that is a hard one. Um, because at first on the surface, I feel like people just walked into my life. Um, and that's how I found them. Um, but actually that's, that's not the only way that that happens. Um, I think being really present and open, um, to new experience. And I want to, I don't want to use the word social because that's social and extroverted is not what I mean. Yeah. um, putting yourself out there and being really who you are, but also being very open and mindful about how you come off to others, all of that will attract people to you. 
that could potentially be friends. Um, like, what does that look like in, in actions? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to go out and do things, too. Um, I mean, I think I am a kind of, I am a pretty extroverted person. Um, Matthew is maybe not so much, but he still is very, he still very much puts himself out there. And that means um, going, like, going out and trying new things. Like, one, one big thing that we started doing is, um, a handful of years ago, and this is because of uh, your your boyfriend Jesse. Uh, we went to festivals, mm-hmm. and you know Jesse had invited me and Matt to go to Lightning in the Bottle back in 2011, and we didn't. <laughs> and we were uh, we just it just didn't seem like our kind of thing. And then the following year, Jesse invited us again, and we're like, yeah, let's. <laughs> sure, let's try it. What do, we don't know what we're getting ourselves into. But let's <laughs> right. go do, yeah, we like music. Sure, let's go. And you just, it was a whole new world of people that are very friendly and open. The kind of people where you, like, you meet someone and instead of going in to shake their hand, they give you a hug. And mm-hmm. that could be kind of invasive for some people I recognize, but it was, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and it, it, just being in, in the presence of, of really open kind of wild, um, wildly creative people really open something up in me. So I, I found that we just, we loved going to festivals because it always, it gave us a chance to just meet lots of people. And some people we, you know, we don't ever talk to ever again. Um, but a handful of our friends are people that we met at festivals and we still to this day hang out outside of that, that, um, setting. Mm -hmm. And I think another way to do it is to um, use social media as, I mean, I don't, I don't do this as much, but I think people could use social media to um, meet new people and expose themselves to new ideas, at the very least. Um, and I'm trying to think of some other ways that you can push yourself out there. I think just even just when you're out and about, if you go to the grocery store, not just being on your phone or in your own head, going about your day, but actually like talking to the cashiers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, paying attention to, to people that are selling, you know, like girls selling Girl Scout cookies. And, um, I think that it's always surprising what kind of conversations you can have with quote unquote strangers. If you yeah. are just willing to slow down a little bit and make eye contact and talk to them and not just be stuck in whatever you're, it is you're doing, which is usually, I feel like, unfortunately, on our phones now. Yeah. Whenever I go out and I do a lot of eating by myself when I'm traveling, I always go, oh, to, yeah. I always go to a place that has a, a bar. And then yeah. I sit at the bar and I make friends with the bartenders. And then I make friends yeah. with the people around me. And even if I never talk to them again, um, or if it's one in my neighborhood and you start becoming friendly with them, it's just a way mm-hmm. to have conversation versus sitting by yourself. And especially if you're new to a neighborhood, it's a cool way to just like, you can ask them all these questions because they're like a hairstylist. They know all these secrets about the people that come in and the community and what's going on. And I feel like there's like a safety in it, in confessing to a bartender that, or your server, like I'm new here. What should I do? What's going on? And they're usually down to tell you because I mean, I imagine they'd rather have that conversation than just keep asking people if they want more water. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely, I think, like a huge thing that one can do. Like, 
like you said, if you, even if you're out eating by yourself, mm-hmm. like that's, that's, if anything, that's like the perfect opportunity to meet um, new people or to learn about a community, especially if you're new, like you said, talking to the bartender, or the server. Um, I mean, I think about a handful of people when Matt and I moved to Redlands from Riverside um, eight, about eight years ago. Um, at the time, our friends were generally some people that we were, that we went to college with and we moved and we knew no one in Redlands at all. And, uh, it was kind of exciting. Um, some of our friends had moved, had already moved, our college friends had already moved to, you know, other parts of the state. Um, so we kind of needed to meet new people anyway. So when we moved to Redlands, um, that's, that's kind of when it all happened. Uh, I would say we met one group of friends. Um, because we went to a wine bar and it was super crowded and this one couple, um, they said, Hey, why don't you guys sit with us? And they're, they're pretty much the same age as us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they, they grew up in the area or in the town and we hadn't. And, you know, that was maybe five or six years ago. They invited us to their wedding within a few months. (laughs) And, (laughs) and to this day, we're still, you know, good friends with them. And then we've met a lot of their local friends that way. And then another sort of core group of our friends, we met because of one person um, who started talking to us at um, a rock climbing gym. And we had, now we're into rock climbing and, and we're really close with those people and that whole group. And, um, and then a third group was uh, actually a former student of mine and uh, she's also a rock climber. Um, but she took me and then she took Matthew and, um, and then when she was no longer a student, we started, you know, just catching up with her and, and met all of her friends that way. So um, it's sometimes it happens in unlikely places, but if we're off our phones and if we are, willing to talk to random people, even if just about something kind of surface level, you never know where it's going to take you. I agree. And it, it might, you might not go anywhere and you may not be friends with those people for very long. Um, but I don't know. I feel like we, I feel like it can happen if you just sort of um, look up and, and kind of stay open to that sort of experience. Mm-hmm. The second question I would love to get your feedback on is going back to where we started. And if someone doesn't think that they're a good reader or maybe they're a slow reader or they just, you know, can't focus on reading, how do you recommend they start if it's something that they would like to expand their abilities in? Um, I think the it just takes practice. So you know, you become a, a stronger reader, for instance, by just reading a lot. So you have to find something that is intriguing to you to read. I mean, if that is, you know, I think, I think I'd recommend you just choose a topic that is um, something you'd like to learn more about. Um, I think fiction is not something a lot of people are interested in. And so I wouldn't always recommend, well, my favorite, you know, my favorite books that I read that are fiction um, because that's a little bit harder to customize, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, some people just don't, I think always see the benefit of reading fiction. They're just like, it just seems kind of worthless um, when I don't think that's the case. 
for me, but I think a lot more people can kind of relate to nonfiction. And so um, what I usually do is if I, if I meet someone, usually a student who's asking for like recommendations, like, Hey, I want to read more, but I'm not sure what I just ask them what they're interested in and then go from there. Um, so I think, I think that's key to just becoming a better reader is to just do it, just to do it more. I mean, it's the same way if, if you're going to get better at soccer, <laughs> you need to practice. Yeah. Um, you may it may take a long time to get to get good, but um, just doing it, I think, is, is that's the hard work that that is involved in just becoming better at something. And so that's how you become a better reader. That's how you become a better writer is to sit down and just write. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't doesn't have to be pure gold. It just just get your ideas out. And of course, there's a benefit of working with someone. You know, like taking your essay to a tutor and saying, does this make sense? <laughs> um, and having the tutor recommend moving things around or asking, you know, kind of having a conversation and the tutor can ask the writer questions. Like, what do you mean by this? Mm-hmm. You, need to, you need to state it more clearly. Like there are definitely tools that coaches are, um, can offer and coaches are very important, but I think a lot of it is just putting the work in yourself. And you will get better eventually. And for everyone who's listening, what are some final things that you want them to be able to take away and to know? I mean, okay. So when I was preparing to um, talk to you for this podcast, I, one, one question that I had thought about was, you know, what's one favorite quote mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and it's interesting because even though I spend so much time with words, I'm not really one to remember key <laughs> quotations. Like I, I think I could probably honestly say I would not be a great actor <laughs> um, and, and trying to remember lines. Maybe I could, if I put my, put my mind to it, but um, generally what, when I hear little like saying, I, I tend to internalize the meaning and sort of, you know, and integrate the idea into my life. Um, but there is one that I do sort of kind of live by that I, that I remember and I think about. And um, it's, it's, it's a very short line said by um, Ram Dass. And he is, you're familiar with Ram Dass, I think, because I gave you that. You gave me a book for my birthday. That yes. book by him. Um, but he is, uh, he is a Westerner um, who uh, used to work for Harvard. He was a psychiatrist, psychologist by training. Um, and he was famous because he, when he went by the name Richard Alpert, when he was working at, at Harvard, he worked with Timothy Leary and they did a bunch of acid trials in the sixties. Um, but he, he went to India. He got all, he kind of got fired and they got that whole thing kind of blew up and um, Ram Dass or Richard Alpert, decided he needed, he needed to search for something more meaningful in his life. And he went to India and he found a guru and he came back and he's very much responsible for bringing um, a lot of sort of a lot of Hindu, but a lot of like kind of Indian wisdom to the mm-hmm. West and yoga and that sort of thing. And he, he just says, he, he is someone that I would, and Matt, I think would consider like kind of like our informal guru, like somebody who we've read a lot of books by and we listen to, he has a podcast and we listen to a lot of his lectures. And one thing he says is this, treat everyone you meet like God and drag. 
And yeah, I think it's, it's a really good way. I mean, it, it certainly makes sense to me to, to live my life by because it, it just is a kind of a recipe for how you should treat people. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you meet people, you just, it's really easy to just see that surface, right? That costume that people are wearing, um, what their job is, how they hold themselves, you know, are they a man or a woman or um, how are they, uh, what is, what's their age? You know, like what's, what roles in life do they play? Like we try to like understand all of that by just like looking at someone and getting to know them very briefly. But we, there's so much more to humans and to individuals and it's really hard to ever understand another human being. Um, and it can just take, you know, lifetimes to understand ourselves, let alone someone else. So if we treat every single person we meet as if they are God, you know, as if there is a sort of complex entity that is all knowing and just full of, of everything the universe has to offer, I think it would change the way that we treat people. So I, I totally agree. Think, yeah, it just. I don't know. It's just a kind of a cool concept. I never really thought about that way until I heard him say it that way. Well, if if you believe that everyone is as has the full abilities of the universe inside of them as much mm-hmm. as they have their ego inside of them, then yeah, right. like it's the same concept like we are stardust, you know, God is in yeah. you. It's all uh-huh. saying the same message of within every person is the possibility to create greatness. And if you can see their light, it changes everything because it's so easy to not want to see the light in people that frustrate mm-hmm. you or, um, you know, do things to hurt you or you think are idiots. Um, but yeah. if you can see the light inside of them, you can see the God inside of them, it, it changes everything because you start looking for something different. Right. Yeah. You start. And I exactly well said. And I I think that it, it also allows us to be more maybe pious isn't the answer, but, or the the word, but it, it stops us in our tracks. If we, if we, if we see that, if we can stop and see that in someone, then we are restricting our own ego reaction temporarily. Yes. You know, the way that we, you know, the way that we would kneel before God you know, if we met him or her, it right. You know, mm-hmm. if we see each person as meeting as a chance to meet God, then it, I think it would change our behavior and just help us get out of our ego a little bit more. Um, and then to recognize that in ourselves too. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that is such a beautiful way to wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Um, I've loved our conversation. I love you and Matt, and I'm so excited I get to see you in a few weeks. And I'm I know. Just, I'm very excited for that, too. Yeah. I'm. Thank you just for being a yes to me and to Powerful Ladies. Thank, thank you so much for this opportunity and for inviting me to do this. And um, I, it's, it's such a cool project and uh, just a really cool opportunity. And I'm, yeah, I'm really thankful for you you know, to be in my life as well. So um, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
Teachers are one of the most important people in our communities. Our whole life is about learning, whether we see it that way or not. And to have people dedicated to enhancing our experience, committed to our development, and excited to share their knowledge is critical, not just to our own life experience, but the well-being of the whole community. Lauren is one of those ideal teachers. She cares about her students as whole people. I hope this episode has left you thinking more about what you can do to support the teachers in your life, opportunities you have to be a teacher yourself, and why it's important that collectively we remember to have our teachers thriving. If you want to connect, follow, or support Lauren, you can email her at bondlaurenkelly at gmail.com with the exact spelling available in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing here at Powerful Ladies, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Leave a review on any of these platforms. Share the show with all the powerful ladies and gentlemen in your life. Join our Patreon account. Check out the website, thepowerfulladies.com to hear more inspiring stories, get practical tools to be your most powerful, get 15% off your first order in the Powerful Ladies shop, or donate to the Powerful Ladies One Day of Giving campaign. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. For show notes and to get the links to the books, podcasts, and people we talk about, go to thepowerfulladies.com. I'd like to thank our producer, composer, and audio engineer, Jordan Duffy. She's one of the first female audio engineers in the podcasting world, if not the first. And she also happens to be the best. We're very lucky to have her. She's a powerful lady in her own right, in addition to taking over the podcasting world. She's a singer-songwriter working on her next album, and she's one of my sisters. So it's amazing to be creating this with her, and I'm so thankful that she finds time in her crazy busy schedule to make this happen. It's a testament to her belief in what we're creating through Powerful Ladies, and I'm honored that she shares my vision. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life, Go be awesome and up to something you love.